are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Here's Nate. The beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2 is one of the most beautiful, heartfelt, and touching sections of God's Word because what you have here is a song, a poem, coming from the heart of a mother who has just donated her son to the service of the Lord. She is giving him away in fulfillment of the vow that she had made to God that if God would give her a son, that son would be given and lent to the Lord for the service of the Lord, especially there in the tabernacle. And so Hannah had done just what she said she would do. She weaned her son took him up to Shiloh, gave a sacrifice, gave him to Eli and praised the Lord. And what follows in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the first 10 or so verses, is the praise and the song that comes from the lips of Hannah. And it really is a song that is borrowed in so many senses later on in divine revelation. It seems that both Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who was quite the miraculous child, but then the most miraculous child, uh, Jesus, his mother Mary, it seems that both Mary and Zechariah borrowed from this song of Hannah in order to cry out to the Lord in celebration for the blessing that he put upon their lives. And so let's observe for a moment with awe and reverence this song or prayer from Hannah. It says in verse 1 that Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Notice, first of all, that this is worship. They're singing there. The last verse of chapter 1 ends with a scene of worship. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, it is referred to as prayer. Worship is prayer. There is a sameness, a similarity between the two. She says, my heart exults in the Lord. That's her beginning cry. And I think it's important to note that Hannah was thankful to God for answering her prayer. She did not forget that it was God who had heard her cry. She was a thankful woman. She was like the one of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed, coming back to say thank you for that healing. She was willing to, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in everything to the Lord. She was going to be a thankful person unto God. And really, in one sense, this is all that God asks for. He works in our lives. He moves in our lives. And what does he desire? Well, he wants a thankful heart, and that's what Hannah had. But secondly, notice this about Hannah. She immediately sings, and who is she rejoicing over? Who is she praising? 
Who is she blown away by? Not Samuel, not this promised son. Her heart exulted in the Lord. She rejoices in God and not in Samuel. She knew that Samuel was a gift, but she knew that the giver of the gift was far greater than the gift himself. God was Hannah's hero. She was in love with God and I think in one sense was able to be comforted by Samuel's departure and that sacrifice by the reality that God would go with her. She still belonged to the Lord and the Lord belonged to her. Now she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. This is not the kind of language that we might use in our modern times, but of course, horns were, would be used by animals for defense and attack. And in that era, they came to symbolize a person's strength. She says, my strength has been lifted up. My strength has been exalted because of the Lord. And my mouth derides, literally broadens. It smiles at my enemies because I rejoice, God, in your salvation. Verse 2, she says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She's realizing here that there is no one like God. That God was more rare than the son of a previously barren womb. God was more rare than Samuel. No one was holy like the Lord. No, no rock, she says, like our God. And what a beautiful description of God. She refers to him as a rock, a, a place of safety, a, a place of refuge. Often you'll see the phrase or the term rock attached to God as a fortress as well. A place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of defense against attack. That is who God is. And she says, now in verse 3, she almost really is turning her attention from the Lord to her accuser, Panina, and to accusers in general. She says, talk no more so very proudly, verse 3. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. In other words, God is the judge, and he sees all. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He makes the poor the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Just an incredible and beautiful prayer from Hannah. Really, at the beginning or, or, or at the front of the paragraph I just read, it's mostly just a role reversal kind of prayer. She gives God uh, and ascribes his majesty and his power, but then she gives a warning. Listen, those who were mighty are broken. Those who are full 
are begging for bread. Those who are barren have borne seven. And those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Those who are feeble have put on strength. And she gives a warning. You know, she says, listen, it's the Lord who makes poor. It's the Lord who makes rich. It's the Lord who brings low. And it's the Lord who exalts. She wants it to be very clear here that it was God who had blessed her life. It was God who had cared for her. It was God who was who had opened the womb and was now prospering her life. And, you know, she even says there at the end of verse 8, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on him he has set the world. In other words, God is in charge here. Everything in creation is under his sovereign control. And if that's his nature, if that's his character, then surely he can protect his people and he can confound their enemies. He will, verse 9, guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. That's a wonderful phrase from Hannah. She just says, listen, the strength of mankind is so limited, but when, when God is in the equation, it's not by might that a man shall prevail. It's God. God must be your defense. God must stand with you. So much of what we do for the Lord, I think we often do it with a view in mind that we will be the ones to give victory, that we will be the ones to cause our church or our ministry, our desires to prevail. It's not by our might, uh, Hannah announces, that man shall prevail. It's God. It's the strength of God, the power of God. Through prayer, through supplication, Hannah won the victory. What did she do? She prayed. She prayed and God heard her cry. And she was used marvelously and miraculously because she turned to the Lord in prayer. It was not by her might that she prevailed. Now in verse 10, she begins to say something that sounds very prophetic. Notice what she says. The adversaries, verse 10, of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, at first glance, uh, there have been some who, in looking at what Hannah has said, have come to the conclusion that this must have been written after the period of the kings had commenced. Because here she is speaking of a day when God would give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But for, of course, for us, we realize, no, God speaks what is to come before it comes to pass. God knows the end from the beginning. And so this is predictive prophecy that is flowing from Hannah's mouth. There were no kings in Israel up to this point, but she is prophesying of that day. But who is she speaking of? <laughs> well, in one sense, she's speaking of the immediate fulfillment 
of that prophecy. A day would come where God would give strength to his king, more than likely David, as Saul was rejected and would not have the title God's king. But beyond that, you know, God had promised to David that there would be an anointed one who would sit upon his throne forever and ever. That phrase came to be a phrase to be used of the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one. So whether she knew it or not, I believe it's possible that Hannah was predicting the coming of Christ, that God would give strength to his king and, ignore, and, and exalt the horn of his anointed. After this song, it says in verse 11, that then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, in contrast, we learn in verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That's fascinating because they were priests. They were there serving the Lord, yet they did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin, verse 17, of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So here we have a description of the way that Eli's sons were serving the Lord. And, it, and Eli's sons are always listed in direct contrast with what Samuel would be like. And Eli's family is always in contrast to Elkanah's family. And uh, so these men were worthless men, it says in verse 12, or wicked men uh, there in verse 12. And so, you know, we've already seen the human reason that Samuel was born. Hannah cried out to the Lord. She longed for a child. That was the human reason. He was a response to a godly mother's prayer. But there was a divine reason. In those days, according to Judges 21 verse 25, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. And this apparently, we now learn, extended all the way to the priesthood. And a couple of things that they did that were so sinful is that, for one, they were not content with the meat that God had scripturally dedicated to the priesthood. Uh, the priests were supposed to get the right shoulder and the breast of these animal sacrifices but that was not enough for these men. They would go in with their three-pronged fork and take additional meat for themselves. They were not content with what God had given to them. A lack of contentment will get you in serious trouble. Be content with what God has prescribed for you as his people. But secondly, they would also not accept in verse 15 at times boiled meat. 
you know, they grew tired of that boiled meat. They wanted to barbecue it. They wanted to cook it over the fire. So they wanted raw meat so that they could prepare it according to their desires. Now, the reason, this is interesting, the reason that the meat was boiled is that it took them back to the method that they employed to prepare the Passover feast originally in Egypt. They had to cook it quickly and hastily, and so they boiled it. And that's what God had asked them to do there at the Passover. So the rejection of boiled meat from the priests was like a mocking word concerning the Passover itself. And so these men took whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it, whatever looked good to them, rather than what God himself had prescribed to them. Uh, they were serving, just as Paul had said in Romans 16, verse 18, they were serving their own bellies. Their God was their belly. And you know, God is a reason for what he's given to us. And so we must accept what the Lord has prescribed. I think in the modern era that I'm ministering in, the area of sexual freedom is a major area that a believer separates himself from the world. We say to ourselves and we say to others and we say to the Lord, listen, God has prescribed a certain thing. He has given sex to mankind to enjoy, to be blessed by with the wife or the husband of their youth, one man, one woman coming together covenantally for the rest of their lives together. The world, though, holds out and says, no, there's more that you must receive. There's so much more that you could have. But it is so much better to be content with what God has given to us, for he's given it to us for a, for a very good reason. There's great blessing in just receiving only that which God has prescribed for you. Now, notice as well that it tells us in verse 17 that the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. These weren't just average Israelites falling into sin. These were priests, and their sin would cause others to hate the tabernacle and hate the worship of God and despise the priesthood and in turn despise God. And so this speaks highly of the responsibility of those who are serving the Lord to live lives of honor and consistency before God, lest we would stumble those weaker than us in the faith. Now in verse 18, we go back to Samuel. It says that Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord, verse 21, visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So what a contrast to Eli's family and Eli's son. You have Elkanah's family, Elkanah's sons and daughters now. God blessing the womb of Hannah. Just a wonderful thing. 
And we love, of course, the fact that the Lord visited Hannah. It's so interesting because this is often the pattern that the Lord is trying to take us through in our own lives. Hannah gave to the Lord and the Lord gave back much more to her. So often we have such a hard time. You know, I don't want to give away my money. I don't want to give away my time. But the reality is you cannot out give God. Hannah could have sat back and said, Lord, when I have five children, maybe three sons and two daughters, then I'll give you my sixth son. It wouldn't have worked. No, she gave that which was costly. She gave her only son and God blessed her with three more sons and two daughters. Whatever you give to the Lord will be worth it, even if it seems crazy. Now Eli, verse 21, back to him, was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And now they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, that's what you're doing, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They were already past the point of repentance. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Again, you have the contrast in the family of Eli, just a very dysfunctional, horrible family. Eli hears of what his sons had been doing. Not only were they taking the meat, but they were actually laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There were these uh, women who would serve in the temple or the tabernacle. And these priests were likely borrowing Canaanite cultic religious practices and we're actually having sex with these women there at the temple. Eli is hearing about the taking of the sacrifices and lying with these women. And all he can do is question these men, speak to them. But it says in verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father. They, they wouldn't hear his voice. It's amazing. He cracked down so hard upon Hannah in chapter one when he thought that she was praying in a drunk manner before God. When he thought she was intoxicated in the temple, he cracked down hard on that woman. But here with these guys, he speaks so softly, so easy with them. Oh, please, guys, don't do this. Please stop. The reputation is not good. But he doesn't harshly deal with them stop them in their work the plank was certainly firmly embedded into his own eye but Samuel he continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord verse 26 and also with man very similar to Jesus as he grew in Luke chapter 2 verse 52 and there came verse 27 a man of God to Eli and said to him, now we don't know who this prophet was, but this man of God comes to Eli and makes an announcement. Thus says the Lord, 
Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of, my, of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. God is alluding to and referencing Aaron, the Levite, who was chosen as, as priest uh, there in Israel. Why then, verse 29, as his relative, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? You're actually taking what belongs to me. You're honoring your sons above me. These men took the best and gave God the rest. God wants us to give him the best so that he can bless the rest in our lives. These men refused. Therefore, verse 30, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And uh, Eli would see examples of this. The ark would be captured in his day. Shiloh would be destroyed in his day. Uh, his sons would die in his day. Just a prophecy of horrible nature directed towards Eli. Notice that he goes on and says in verse 34, And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. In other words, here's this prophet making this declaration to Eli. The question that Eli might ask is, How do I know that this was a legitimate prophecy concerning my future generations? Well, here it is. The prophet announced, both of your sons shall die on the same day. You know, when, when Eli saw and heard that both of his sons had died on the same day, he would know that the prophecy from this man's mouth was accurate and would come to pass. And I will raise, verse 35, up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. God promises here that he's going to transfer the priestly duties and responsibilities out from the house of Eli to another house for 
ever. Now, this is fulfilled actually in 1 Kings chapter 2. Abiathar would be the final priest in Eli's line and Zadok would still fulfill the qualifications of the priesthood, although not through the line of Eli. Perhaps more close, however, in timeline would be Samuel. He would be the faithful priest in, in uh, contrast with the unfaithful sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. But then looking out way past Samuel, way past Zadok, who is the ultra-faithful priest? Well, that's Jesus Christ, the righteous, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest who will serve us forever. The priesthood transferred to his name forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.